to episode 226 of Late Night Linux, recorded on the 24th of April, 2023. I am Joe, and with me are Phelan. How's it going? Graham. Hello. And Will. Beep, beep, beep. Oh no, he's turned digital. I'm being an emergency alert. Oh, oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. I didn't get that. I slept through it. I didn't get mine either. Well, Will's the only one that's going to survive the apocalypse on the <laughs> arc, so... Well, my phone was on three, so I didn't get it either. <laughs> that's a big <laughs> success. <laughs> Yet another great success for the Tory government. <laughs> Sunny uplands. Brexit opportunities. <laughs> anyway... Let's start with some excellent news. Linux Matters has launched. This is a new show in the late-night Linux family. Linuxmatters.sh for details. This is Poe, Pete, Wimpy, and Mark, who used to do the Ubuntu podcast, and this is very different. It's a totally <laughs> different show. It's nothing like the Ubuntu podcast. There's no bit about Ubuntu. There's no command line love. It's totally different. And it's very good, and it's nice to have the three lads back. It's compounded my problem of I had to find replacements for them while they were gone, and now I have too much things to listen to. So, yeah, good. <laughs> Cheers for that. I think they should have called it Linux Lifestyle, but there you go. That was already taken, though, wasn't it? Yeah, it hasn't been used for a while. Uh, maybe you could have given them the domain. Sold. Sold them the domain. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, linuxmatters.sh is the website. But if you are already subscribed to the All Episodes feed, then you will have it already. And similarly, if you are a $10 or more per month patron, you'll get it automatically and ad-free. And we've actually updated the Patreon now. So if you only want to support one show at a time, then that's only $5 and you can get an advert-free RSS feed of that. So either this show, Linux After Dark, Linux Downtime, or Linux Matters. Although obviously it makes more financial sense to support all four shows for $10. But, you know, you've now got the choice. All right, let's do some proper news then. Firefox may soon reject cookie prompts automatically. So this is the GDPR stuff where you go to any website and it says, oh, cookies, yes or no, or whatever. There's various plugins that will do this for you, but it's good to see that Mozilla are baking this in. So we'd like to have a go at them quite a lot, but this is good. We want to see more stuff like this, I think, in Firefox. Well done, Mozilla. It was quite funny when I first opened this page. Obviously, I don't go to ghacks.net that much. Consent O'Malik, the plugin that Will recommended to us a while back, popped up and closed all the GDPR stuff before I could see it. So I was like, hey, yeah, it'd be nice to have that all built in, though. What I hope will happen from this, and I haven't actually tested it yet, but what I hope will happen is that it, unlike Consentomatic, which shows the pop-up and then you see it working away in the background, clicking on all the relevant buttons, what I hope is that all of that becomes invisible and it just never appears. That would be much improved in my mind. But it's a bit of an odd add-on, given that there are already quite a lot of plugins that do it. I've been thinking about what I would prefer. Should it be baked in or should it be as a separate plugin or an extension? And I think having it baked in means that you've got the might of Firefox. You've got probably some clever detection stuff going on behind the covers that they don't normally expose to extensions. So, yeah, I, I hope that it will work very well. I do kind of like the way Consentomatic kind of pops up and you see the amount of stuff because some websites, the amount of things it has to click through is mm. astonishing. Like, because it's obviously doing it bit by bit. The bit you'd give up about halfway through, if not even sooner, on a lot of websites to just go, oh, fuck it, just give me them all. I don't care anymore. Just make it stop. So um, it is kind of nice to know who's a bit of a, well, I won't say it. Shower of bastards. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they could keep uh, the stats for all the things that they close. Mm. I agree. I think it's a really good idea, and I think it's nice that it'll be integrated for 
normal people. I think you can set it to reject only or not. I'd like to be able to fine tune some of the settings sometimes, but that's only when I'm reading the daily mail, so it doesn't really matter. (laughs) Well, it looks like the options are going to be either you can set it to just reject everything that it can and ignore everything else or reject everything it can and accept the ones that don't have a reject. So there will be some granularity there and it doesn't seem like it'll be by default, but we don't know yet. I don't think it should be by default somehow. I think it should be optional, opt-in. Another good reason for this being default is that lots of people will use it and Mozilla will get lots of feedback. And if it's worth it, they may put more effort into making it more granular and how you configure it and statistics and things like that. And if it works really well, then maybe Google will do the same with Chrome as well. (laughs) (laughs) Sure they will. This is closely related to my find of the fortnight as well. Um, As I was poking around in Firefox settings, I discovered this setting called resist fingerprinting. And when I went to look it up in the Firefox help, there's a useful blog article about how to switch it on and what it does. And it enables Firefox to detect additional fingerprinting that's happening, specifically around the canvas, and to try and block that discovery. So this is the really sort of nefarious tracking stuff that tries to give you some sort of unique ID on the web by virtue of the plugins that you have installed or the performance of your machine or, you know, all of these sort of really difficult to block things. And Firefox has this ability built in, which I had no idea existed. So I switched it on, and it's been on now for a couple of weeks, I think. And I found one website, which suddenly I can't log into. Otherwise, everything's worked flawlessly. Now, they do say up front that this is likely to break some websites. And indeed, it does. It breaks AliExpress. (laughs) So that tells you everything you need to know, which is a shame. So now I just have to use the app on my phone. I am sure that's totally fine. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny, we've definitely talked about this. We must have talked about this when this became a thing. I'm pretty sure we did. This isn't in the options, is it? So, like, why is this not in the options menu in part of the privacy stuff? I don't understand that. I think it's a bit hit and miss. Like, it may break a lot of stuff. So it's probably not something they want normal people fiddling with. But you can get to it through about config easy enough and, uh, and switch it on. Well, luckily enough, I don't remember things like this, so I've turned it to true now and will not know why in several weeks why nothing (laughs) is working. So, mystery for me to find. Oh, no. Can you still even load the Google Doc that we're looking at? (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, well done, Mozilla. Praise where praise is due. Matthew Garrett has a PSA for everyone. Upgrade your Lux key derivation function. Yeah, so I thought this was interesting, mainly because we should be encrypting our internal storage that we use on distributions, and distributions like Ubuntu will do it for you. But older versions of Ubuntu used Lux 1, and the key derivation function, which Matthew will explain, is a a way of getting a longer key from a shorter key. It could potentially, if you're a spy and of particular interest to some government agency, be reverse-engineered with a, a warehouse full of GPUs, in theory, if you care about that kind of thing. And what I thought was interesting was that there's always this trade-off between security and ease of use and whether somebody's going to mess their system up and whether it should... Because Matthew Garrett at the end of this post says that maybe distributions should be responsible for asking people to upgrade their encrypted drives. Um, And that's a difficult one because that involves people potentially losing their data, not understanding what's happening, all kinds of difficult kind of things you have to consider. And of course, you can do it yourself, which is probably the best way. 
but I don't know. I don't know whether distribution should be responsible. Um, I don't know whether it's even relevant for most people and whether we should be encouraging people to encrypt their data. And we had a, a discussion in our own group about this, and I thought it was really interesting what Phelib said. Fair enough. There's no spy agency after us. But I mean, the examples I'd always use is if you have a hard drive and you have family photos or pictures of your kids or perhaps media files that you've backed up from your DVD collection onto it, and then your drive goes pop after a couple of weeks and you want to replace it. Are you going to send that in not knowing what's going to happen to it? Like, are they going to send you a certificate to say, we have shredded this? Mm -hmm. Or are you going to actually have it pre-encrypted where you don't give a shite what happens to it? Because you can just send it in. Because the second that drive goes dead, you can't zero at that point. But somebody in there can take the platters out and take a look at them. It's a bit perhaps far-fetched, but it's not impossible and you just don't know. And it's that not knowing I find is a real issue. And I'd have client data on my machine. So, you know, if some lunatic comes in here and thinks that any of my gear is worth entering and nicks it, which it will definitely not get them much, I can say to my clients, everything was encrypted. Nobody's going to be able to get that data back. It's, you know, so it's, it's a checkbox where you can say, it's all safe. I don't need to worry about it. Well, it's funny you mentioned sending drives back. One time I bought a drive off Amazon, plugged it in, started copying all of my stuff, which was backups of the show files, all of the raw files, the raw audio files. And it got an hour or so in and then just died. And then, like you say, I couldn't zero it out. I couldn't wipe it. So I just had to send it back. So somewhere out there, there's raw recordings of us all the stuff that I cut out. Oh, God. Dear God, and you've never brought this up? What the fuck? I know, sorry, I've just thought of it now. So, yeah, someone's probably got hold of that and going to... Blackmail us. No, what have they got to... Oh, no, shit. <laughs> yeah, do you remember that time? That, yeah. yeah. Mm. That time I told you what I really thought. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I remember when we talked about that person. <laughs> yeah, you know who you are. <laughs> Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com to try it for free on up to 100 devices. That's tailscale.com. Mixed news for Red Hat, eh? They turned 30 recently, but uh, they've also had to lay off a load of people. So swings and roundabouts. Is there any information in that article about why they laid people off? Because last time we talked about Red Hat, I feel like we were talking about record profits from that business and how they were effectively propping up IBM with the, with the amount of money they were making. Well, here's the thing, right? Loads of other companies have laid people off. So that's why they're doing it, because everyone else is. It's just what you do now. 
I wonder if these are all going to be the uh, IBM employees that are uh, getting laid <laughs> yeah. off. Is this, the, is this that reverse takeover that we've been talking about before? Well, my understanding is that it is some of the technical people have been let go. So it's a sign that Red Hat are following suit with the rest of the industry and tightening their belts because there was this kind of massive hiring spree by every company over the kind of lockdown COVID times. And now companies seem to be sort of lightening the load a little bit in anticipation of this terrible recession or whatever, which seems to always be just around the corner. I know you guys have kind of alluded to it, um, but I think for those big companies, we all know it's it's bullshit. <laughs> I feel sorry for, firstly, the people who are affected by the layoffs at Red Hat. Yeah. You know, it's hugely traumatic. And the way that people are so de- dealt so impersonally these days, I think it's terrible. And it's terrible for... A, not Red Hat, IBM specifically, but it's terrible that it, executives just seem to use these kind of changes of environment and changes of sentiment to kind of purge just to see what will happen. I don't know what it's going to be with IBM and Red Hat, but it, it doesn't surprise me when there's a big merger like this that, you know, a few years later you, and the, the first kind of opportunity, they go through kind of a purge round. I have no idea. This is just my personal opinion but I mostly feel sorry for the people that have been affected. It was supposed to be a good news story about Red Hat being 30, (laughs) but it's been sullied a little bit. Can you believe it, though? 30 years and still making masses of money. Yeah, and that is a good news story. I mean, how different things were when Red Hat started. You know, when we were all hoping that we could, you know, use Linux one day as as a computer to get some real work done. And other people might use Linux too. And look at where we are. And Red Hat is a huge and remains a huge part of that story. It is it is amazing and it is a great achievement. Yeah, they took a big gamble, didn't they, that Linux was the future. And it turned out that they were absolutely spot on. Yeah. And they set the model for open source business. I mean, real open source. They've they've really made a strong commitment to open source and remain to do so. We may disagree with some of their strategies, but they've always remained committed to open source development. Yeah, we might not necessarily like everything that they make, but at least everything they make is open source. Mm, yeah, And they haven't been tempted to go down the open core route or changing licenses to, to be not quite properly open source compliant. They've managed to make it work and to the tune of billions of dollars a year. And as you said, really set that standard, really set an example of how you can make money out of open source. Yeah, and they've done it so successfully that few people have been, nobody can really compete with them and hasn't been able to compete with them, which is really interesting. You'd think there were more companies of Red Hat scale that were doing a similar thing, but there really weren't and there really aren't still. Mm. Well, there's Sousa, who are not quite as big, but they are kind of just chugging away doing something broadly similar. Yeah, the Sousa and there's Canonical, of course, but it's still it's still an order of magnitude off Red Hat's success, I think. Yeah, well, it helps if you manage to not get sold every five minutes, like Sousa does. <laughs> They've got such a healthy revenue, though, Sousa. It's remarkable. They're, they mm. really are the quiet horse of uh, enterprise-grade Linux. I don't know whether it's the, the cliche of all the German banks using Open Sousa, but whatever they're doing is right. I think that the reason that Sousa and Open Sousa don't get talked about very much is that they are the distro for the non-English-speaking European world, as it were. I'm sure that they would disagree and say, no, we're the distro for everyone, but it seems to me that it is huge in the parts of Europe that don't speak English as a first language, as in not us or you Irish. 
Does that mean there's a German version of Late Night in the Nick somewhere moaning continuously about Open Suzo? And- yeah, and also Mozilla. <laughs> Spätnacht Linux! <laughs> they love GNOME. <laughs> there's been a couple of big GNOME based releases Fedora 38 and Ubuntu 2304. Now, Fedora, I tried it out, and what was remarkable to me is how well integrated FlatHub now is in 38. And it really struck me that it is a very solid alternative to Ubuntu if you like GNOME. If you're into GNOME, I can see why a lot of people would like it. It is now very, very polished. GNOME is very polished. Fedora is very polished. The whole experience is first class if you like GNOME, which I don't particularly, but nevertheless, a lot of people do. And so this release has kind of opened my eyes to why so many people really like Fedora. And now, Joe, I don't know if you've heard it, but GNOME 44 has the copy and the paste. Yeah, as the copy and the paste for the images, as thumbnails in uh, the file dialogue thing. It's got everything. But in all seriousness, it is an absolutely brilliant release, if you like GNOME. I just ha- I have to keep caveating it with that. I think GNOME looks amazing, actually. I think it's this generation of GNOME has really improved the look and feel. I think most people would be more than happy with it. I love the functionality in, in the top bar, and I love the design when it's done well on some of the apps. It really can look amazing. App to purge KDE from your system immediately, Graham. <laughs> no, it is. I think we're in such a great position. You know, if you care mm. about how your desktop looks, you now have... You can choose between GNOME and KDE, and if you don't care, you've got XFCE. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. No, in all fairness, I think it is good to have choices. <laughs> Even if the choices is to have a not-choice desktop, I think that's fine if people like it. And yeah, it's great that the strength of the whole community is there as a one rather than, you know, we don't have to all pretend that we're the only thing left out there. But that FlatHub integration is really so good now and you can just get chrome straight away you don't have to piss around downloading whatever you can just get a flat pack of chrome if you want it you can do the lvfs updates just there in the software center i think you've been able to do that for ages it's it's now just at a point where it's so well polished that it's it's highly recommended and similarly ubuntu 2304 now for me what was remarkable about this is how unremarkable it is how all of the improvements are just polish at this point. I mean, I must have said this before, but we really are getting to a point now where it's just small quality of life improvements, paper cut improvements. The two big distros that we've got, as far as I'm concerned, Ubuntu and Fedora, are now in a position where there's not much to say about them, and that is a very good thing. Well, you might want not want to say good, much about this one, but the one thing that I saw from a business sense is the Active Directory integration stuff, especially with Azure, because a lot of people that seem to be small businesses these days are getting tied into the whole Office 365 Azure stuff, much as it galls me to say it. But to be able to play ball in that environment is excellent that they're actually keeping up with that as well. Yeah, this is specifically Azure Active Directory, yeah. which is not the same as your on-prem one. It's a, it's basically totally different, and they just call it the same thing because it sort of achieves the same goal. And this is now available in Ubuntu 23.04, so it's going to make it into the next LTS, I assume. And this is exactly the kind of thing we need to be taken seriously. I mean, it's not going to be for the likes of you or, or me, but you know, if you can have a 
roll out to a client and they need workstations and you're able to look at all the tooling available and say, we can stick a Linux distro here in this place and, you know, eliminate all the antivirus stuff and things like that. I think that's a win. I mean, we might not all like the fact that it's AD, but if it's there, you're not going to change their minds about that from that level. So if you can play properly in that environment with your Linux workstation, that's brilliant. There's a demo video. It looks really straightforward to add. You create your account in Azure Active Directory, get a couple of keys, paste it into a config file, switch on um, creating home directories, and you're done. You can just log in with your username and password. It will set that machine up, create the home directory, and log you in. And it's from the video that I watched. It looked really straightforward and really fast. Now, there are a couple of comments on that video to say that it doesn't support two-factor authentication or YubiKeys, for example. Now, that is quite a significant flaw, but I would fully expect that hold to be patched before the next LTS. Like I imagine that that is next on the list of priorities. So yeah, I think as a as a business user, as somebody managing a massive fleet of workstations, to have the ability to create a, an account in Active Directory in Azure and then just let people log onto those machines, incredibly powerful, incredibly useful. And I'd rather this than to install a whole bunch of Windows workstations and then have everybody play around and pretend WSL bollocks. I mean, this is a much better way of doing it. So, Yeah, and the only way you're going to make money out of a distro is selling into the enterprise. And so this has got to be good for Canonical's bottom line long term, you would have thought, which overall feeds into the whole ecosystem. So this is exactly the kind of features that you want to see. I mean, like Fainham said, it's not personally what we're going to use, but it is good to see it from the kind of wider perspective. I mean, let's be realistic. This is how Red Hat made their money. They're selling to big mainframe replacing banks. They're not selling to the likes of you and me either. You can take the business world for as much as you can get, and then we reap the rewards. That's fantastic. That's the way it should be. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Linode. Go to linode.com slash late night Linux, support the show, and get $100 free credit. From their award-winning support, offered 24-7, 365 to every level of user, to ease of use and setup, It's clear why developers have been trusting Linode for projects both big and small since 2003. Deploy your entire application stack with Linode's one-click app marketplace or build it all from scratch and manage everything yourself with supported centralized tools like Terraform. And check out their managed MySQL, Postgres, and MongoDB databases that allow you to quickly deploy a new database and defer management tasks like configuration, managing high availability, disaster recovery, backups, and data replication. Simple and fast to deploy with secure access, their flexible plans include daily backups. So go to linode.com slash late night Linux, create a free account, and you'll get $100 in credit and support the show. That's linode.com slash late night Linux. On to a bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to latenightlinux.com slash support. I won't give you the whole spiel. You will have heard that at the beginning of the show. So rewind if you want to hear it again. And if you want to send in your feedback or your thoughts on anything we talk about, you can email show at latenightlinux.com. Let's do a quick KDE corner then. And I told you, Fadim, you've got to make this quicker and you've put about 50 links in. (laughs) Well, I shortened them down because I realized that one of the links had about five of the other links in it. So it's a bit shorter and I'm sorry if it's a bit boring, but a new release of 2304 came out for the KDE gear. 
and there is so much good new software out there and then fixes and improvements to current stuff that it, I just can't not say it. Let's put it that way. You know what you need, Fairly? You need your own podcast. We need the KDE EV to pay us to produce KDE Corner as its own show. <laughs> God, could you imagine the excitement? God, we've some people have written into us who just love that. Yeah. Well, maybe we could crowdfund it or something. Anyway, so you've got a lot of releases that accompany this then. KDE Live has a new speech-to-text subtitle plugin. They have Vosk right now, which listens out, but there is a... Can't believe I'm going to say it. Open AI Whisperer system that is allowed to listen to the audio. Ah. Now, I don't use Cadian Live, so there is no problem with me using this. So, ha ha ha, in your face. They also have new wipes. There's a new store for projects. So, if you want to start up a video project that you want to like split into multiple shots or whatever, there might be one already pre done for you, which is quite cool. And they also support nested timelines for this, which I imagine is probably an easier way to manage a larger project. It's probably for the mobile, the next few, but Ariana is a ebook reader, which ties in with Baloo, the search engine, and that's quite good for your ebook stuff. I don't have that many, so I wasn't really able to see much of an improvement. It doesn't do PDFs, it's only the e- EPUB. There's updates and releases of Tokadon, Audio Tube, which is a way to listen to audio from YouTube, and Plasma Tube, which is a, way, a great way to skip the sort of intrusive privacy destroying <laughs> adverts that come with that whole platform. There's Casts, which is a new podcast listening app. NeoChat is the Matrix client. Tokadon for Mastodon. There's updates to Falcon to work better with the K-Wallet stuff. NanoNote, which is a nice new little markdown note take an app. It just literally has one list, or essentially one backend file. I've been using it on my desktop. I just pin it to all my desktops. It's great because it does things like recognize the checklist format, which is quite cool for to-do lists and stuff. Spectacles had a total redesign of the UI and it can now do screen recording. Dolphin ties in with the AFC protocol for iOS devices. So if you have an iPhone or whatever, you can sort you out. And it's also got that Kyo admin thing for super user access. Console runs on Windows. So if you're stuck in that abysmal land and you don't want to use WSL, you've got consoles. So you've got a decent console application that you can use. And Digicam has a massive load of new files and camera support. It's got an OCR tool and it's got a... <sighs> An AI image quality qualifier in there as well. I luckily don't use that either. So, haha, I'm skirting around my AI stuff. So, there we go. You're definitely going to end up using AI by the end of this year. Just you wait. No, no. We'll see. All right. The road to KDE Connect 2.0. Yeah. Now, this is scary because KDE Connect is, well, the planning of it was 10 years old at this point, which is disturbing and as they were saying like some of the protocols they even use like udp broadcast is the only way to discover stuff back then whereas you'd use multicast dns now like tls version one before android 5 i didn't think that existed so things like that and all the ropey protocols that were available and you know they have now had work done they've had security audits done and they've had accessibility audit is being done by han university as well and keep watching this space because the work on KD Connect 2 is coming. So there'll be more updates and it's great to see it because it is such a useful tool. And even if you're using one of the other versions of it, like the GNOME version and the, what was the other one? I can't remember. It was a iOS one as well. Yeah. So it's great to see that it spread across because so, so handy. You mentioned snaps last time, but now there's even more. Yeah. There's about 40 KD snaps, which there's a list provided by Scarlett not to list them all out here, but she's also provided in a wiki article on how to create them, which is quite cool. And she'll be getting paid work from Freaksian, which is the Debian 
LTS LTS version support company. And that's cool to see. So more people getting paid to do FOSS work. Brilliant. All right. What's this Plasma products and it's not a desktop environment? This was actually a story that caught my eye about Plasma not being a desktop environment by this being this thing that lives on top of a desktop environment or, or what is a desktop environment and it's an interesting discussion we've kind of verged on it sometimes but I find it awkward with KD plasma because it's such a difficult phrase to get other people to understand and describe we're all kind of familiar with it and we accept it but I think it's worth looking at ourselves and saying KD plasma is already difficult enough to understand without then discussing whether or not there's a desktop environment Given that most people conflate KDE and Plasma, Mm. yeah, we don't need another layer of complication. But on the other side, it does talk about how they have very many different versions of it for creating on smaller applications or very specific stuff like car entertainment systems. So I definitely think it's worth a read and a watch uh, if people have time. All right. And Fedora, one of your favorites, Immutable OS, another one of your favorites. This is Fedora Kinoite 38. What's new in that? I can't be said that I'm not at least providing the sort of knowledge and pass on of these things that you shouldn't use, but you know, they're there. And if you really do want to use them, then fair enough. But uh, yeah, it's obviously based on Fedora 38. There's some extra features in there, loads of different applications. They've dropped some of the things out of the read-only bit, file like KFind and the K remote frame buffer, because it, <laughs> they're not much use as a flat pack because they essentially can't do anything that you need them to do. So I thought that was kind of funny, but there's a flat pack KCM that's been added to that for the configure permissions and stuff. And yeah, I mean, if people want to go this way, then yeah, that's, it's good that they have the KDE choice and don't just get stuck with GNOME. And uh, there's also the discover update in this that allows you to upgrade from Fedora 37 to 38 as well, which is quite cool. One of these days I'm going to have you on air arguing with George Castro about the various merits of uh, immutable file system distros. AKA how massively wrong he is. Yeah, well, maybe we'll organize that at some point. We'll have to see. Can one man be so wrong? Yes, yes they can. Anyway, links to all that KDE stuff in the show notes. We better get out of here then. We'll be back next week when who knows what we'll be talking about. But until then, I've been Joe. I've been Phelan. I have been Graham. And I've been Will. See you later. <laughs>